down has that effect on you. Nothing else being said could be effective, but shh, does something to us, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, well, good morning. It's nice to be seated among you. Uh, thank you, guys. Many of you are yet again finding an opportunity to pray for me beyond my normal sinful weaknesses. You have physical issues now that you can continue to pray for me for. Um, I should get some more diagnosis on Monday, but it looks like I've torn at least two ligaments and cartilage and fractured the end of my femur. That's not too bad, though. I don't think I did the femur very much. Thank you. I tried to get my money's worth before I move on to marbles. You know, you try and accomplish as much as possible in life. <laughs> Uh, well, welcome to Open House Sunday, and uh, I know we've got some, some new folks here, many folks visiting. Uh, I'm pretty sure the folks, when you drop your children off, they, they kind of make you aware that if a little number pops up on that screen up there that happens to coincide with your child's number, you don't win any prizes. <laughs> that little number means your child cannot be consoled and needs your assistance. <laughs> So I'm pretty sure they pass that along to you. But Open House Sunday for us is just something we do periodically a few times a year. Uh, that, that It's an open house. It's just letting folks come in and, and be a part of our lives and, and what's normal for us here. And, you know, we, we do open house type things because, you know, as you heard from Brian, many, many people here have a story like that. We could, we could be sitting here for days listening to the number of stories that are present in this room of how God has made an incredible difference in our lives. And incredible difference needs to be the framing word. Because if, if you're shopping in your life and trying to find whether, you know, whether or not God has done much, boy, something's not right. Because God's an amazing God. And our lives can be amazingly in need of God. And so when he reaches us, what an effect, like we heard from, from Brian's life. So uh, if you bump into somebody at Lakeview, odds are, if you're here this morning, you probably came perhaps because you're tired of being invited by them. <laughs> and you thought, if I just come, they'll leave me alone. Uh, and now they're going to invite you to the Alpha Course next. <laughs> well, the, the reason why that is, though, uh, is because God has done something so significant in their own lives uh, and in our lives. And so welcome. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, let, me, let me pick up on something Brian said uh, because his, his story, uh, it, just, it, it sounds like probably many of our stories in some way just change a little bit of the details of it. But he, he said this in his testimony, I look towards the older kids in my neighborhood as role models I started experimenting with alcohol and drugs. Well, you know, at this moment, you know, his experimentation led him into a different set of drugs than mine, but that, that was my story. That's exactly how my story was as a teenager looking to older kids in the neighborhood. Uh, I don't think I actually thought of them as role models, uh, but that's what they were. You know, they were modeling something about life that provided for me an example of something to pursue. And, and I began to do exactly that, experiment with alcohol and drugs. And 
you know, when you, when you listen to that, that language, I looked to and I began to experiment with. All of us have some verbiage like that in our lives. At some point in your life, you look to things and you experiment, you try new stuff. Now the question is, why? Why do we do that? Why is it that we're just not okay with things as they are, and they have been this way for a while, but I don't need an experiment. I'm good. I don't need to try anything new. I'm good. I don't need to look somewhere else. I'm good. But yet, that's not how any of us live. We are lookers, and we're after something, and we're intrigued by things, and we're drawn to them. And, you know, he gave us a little hint there when he said something about, uh, I think it was the drugs that were filling the void inside. It's a great picture. You know, if, if humanity, if, if people were weather systems, I used to want to be a weatherman when I was a kid. People were weather systems, then we would be low pressure, right? Low pressure systems, that's what we would be. You know, they try to explain that to you when the air changes outside. High pressure, high pressure pushes away from itself, so it, it, it lives this way. Low pressure pulls things into it. It's, it's a void. And there's something about our lives that we're like low pressure. We're just looking to draw something out there. It's like something in here needs something out there. And we just live our lives drawing things into us. There was a fellow named Paul Tripp wrote a book a couple years ago called The Quest for More. He used that word quest and journey, you know, good language that describes our lives. He said this, There is woven inside each of us a desire for something more, a craving to be part of something bigger, greater, and more profound than our relatively meaningless day-by-day existence. Right? That little phrase, bigger, greater, I, mean, I know you're probably watching the Olympics. You know, remember the, the storyline around the, the, the luge accident that happened? was this quest for something bigger and faster, a faster track. And then then the guys who've been doing that sport for years were saying, everything just keeps getting faster and faster and faster. Well, you know, is it like 90 miles an hour fast enough? You're 90 miles an hour and you're an inch from the the ice. Isn't that fast enough? No, we want to go faster. We never have enough. He goes on and he says, being a fan in the stands with 65 other the 65,000 other fans at the Super Bowl, will, with everyone screaming at the top of their lungs as the kicker launches that last second field goal, gives us a feeling of transcendence. That was actually the NFC Championship game. I think he was meant to be referring to. You hear it in the voice of the fan who says, It's our year. Our time has come. We're going to win this one. He sounds like he's a paid member of the team, yet he's not. The we language is transcendence. He has become part of something greater than his mundane work-a-day world. Isn't, isn't that us? At some point in our life, whatever it is that we have, you know, when it was new and it captured us, it was new, it was bigger than the old model, it was more square footage in our house. And at some moment, that stuff slipped from more and bigger and more profound into mundane, didn't it? Remember the stuff you got right now in your life, your new car, your new clothes, right? You, you know, like you prioritize your clothes, you know, you got your favorites. 
then you got your stuff that's just kind of waiting for the moths to eat it. At some point, the moth food was a favorite of yours that you, know, you were looking forward to. But everything slides into this mundane, day-to-day category. And, and what's wrong with mundane day-to-day? What is it about us that just can't stand that? I mean, what's wrong with that? So you get up, you eat breakfast, you go to work, earn a living, you come home, go to bed, get up, you know. What is it about that we just can't stand that? That's just, that just doesn't work for us. Just to do the same thing, even if it's pretty adequate stuff in our lives. It's meeting our needs, we're, we're eating a meal. I, mean, I, I can remember years ago being in these very remote Mexican villages where we were helping to build churches. And, and I can remember walking through them and, and observing people's life patterns, dusty little rickety shacks that, that were their homes, and you'd come in and sit on a dirt floor uh, with light peering in through pieces of the home, and you realize this is that person's whole existence. And their children and their parents all lived right here in this village, and the housing never changed. They didn't get a new car. You know, nothing, nothing new and tantalizing was flowing in and out of this setting. And I can remember, they're on a missions trip, walking through going, oh, I just, I could not live here. <laughs> I don't know how I would live here. There's something in us that just wants something more. And no matter who you are, it's in you. No matter what level of success you've had. Look, I pulled this quote from Mr. Tom Brady in an interview on 60 Minutes. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. You know, it's guys like Brady who can rescue a lot of us from this pursuit into oblivion with something that doesn't seem to be able to be grasped. So this is, this is our human condition, and whether, it, whether you're studying philosophy for years and years, philosophers are trying to address the same things that Brian Brown spoke about. Emptiness. There's a void in here. And how do we, how do we fix that? Maybe you're not into philosophy, but if you're watching modern advertisement or reading an ad, that commercial on TV has one agenda. It wants to reach into the void and make its product fill you and fix you. That's where they want to go. The first thing they've got to convince you is your life isn't complete. Your life is lacking. And it's an easy thing to do. And then they want to offer you a solution to it. So here would be man's, man's simple condition. Something in here needs something out there. Everybody's in that condition. The question is, but what? What is it that is out there that will meet the need in here? Right? Well, and this is where the scripture is so helpful to us. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 63. If you don't have a, a Bible, just... Steal one from the person next to you. No. I will carefully read these passages and you can listen carefully. 
Psalm 63, its title says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Uh, the Psalms in Scripture, they, they, are, they are poetry. They are songs. But they are songs with context. And, you know, some, some people in our musical history are really good songwriters. And, you know, whether you grew up in the 60s even, there were guys writing music, you know. Some of them were tripping on acid writing music, but they, that was their context. But other guys were, were writing music about life and about the pain of life and what they were experiencing and questions. And, and you can see how life stirs these things up in you. And poetry and song gives us a vehicle through which to, to write these things down. Well, in this psalm, David is the one writing out of an experience. And most folks believe his experience in the wilderness is following a particular set of circumstances in his life. Now, David was a a Jewish king over the nation of Israel. And he was was perhaps uh, one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had and was used in God's purpose in an amazing way. But it doesn't mean David's life didn't have problems. David's a hero in the scriptures, but David's a hero with a rough life, with a heartbreaking life. And when we get to this context where this psalm is being written, uh, David's got some really bad family issues going on. So, you know, whether whether you're having a good day at work or not, you know, if the family's falling apart, then you're not having a good day. David's not having a good day. David has just had... Uh, one of his oldest sons, Amnon, and David had multiple marriages, so he had an oldest son, Amnon, who actually rapes his half-sister. And then her brother, who would be his half-brother, finds out about it, Absalom, and Absalom decides, I'll bide my time, but Amnon is a dead man. This is within David's household. These are both his, his boys. So in a matter of time... Absalom has Amnon brutally murdered. David finds out about that. Now, this is the David who's found out that Amnon has raped one of my other children in his own household. And Absalom now is going to be banished by David. And so he's kicked out of the city of Jerusalem and he's banished for a couple of years. And finally, he returns to Jerusalem David not even acknowledging him, and finally, after a good bit of time, Absalom says, hey, uh, I might as well stay banished. You know, is there any future for me here? And David has an audience with Absalom and returns Absalom to normal patterns of life. But Absalom, over these years, has built up what appears to be quite a bitterness and a hostility towards his father, his father who's the king. And Absalom, who would be in the line of being king. Now, it was never a good thing to be a king. If you ever watch movies where there's kings... You know, that's the reason why they had cup bears and all those guys. You know, it's like, taste this to see if I can drink it. I mean, no, that's not a job. I don't, th- I don't think I'd want that. Everybody wants your head. Well, in his own household, Absalom, his son, creates a conspiracy and carefully plots to head off all the men that he can contact in the nation of Israel and begin to poison them against King David and to present himself to them as the remedy to everything that my father doesn't do well, I would care for you differently if I was king. And he sets the nation 
subversively against his father. And then he creates a conspiracy and in, and in a moment pulls the trigger on that thing. And David is out. And he's running now for his life. Uh, matter of fact, a couple of, I won't look the scriptures up, but a couple of places in Second Samuel depict David all of a sudden becoming aware of this, that there's this coup. And when there's a coup, the first thing that needs to get done is the, the king needs to be killed. So David runs into his household, grabs up his, his family members, and they, they flee. He leaves some there. He's not prepared to go off into the wilderness, but he's running for his life. And there's these pictures, these just heart-wrenching pictures of a man who's running from his own son for his life. And he is leaving Jerusalem. And there's some parting moments there. And there's people watching and they're weeping as they're watching David leave. And I'm thinking, you know, this is a man who walked in and out of Jerusalem year after year with one victory after another over opponents and over foreign nations. And he perhaps is looking at the gate in Jerusalem and leaving and thinking, I, I will never return. My, my days are over in Jerusalem. I'm going to die at the hands of my son. Because Absalom has thousands of soldiers now at his beck and call. So David flees. It says he walked out on the Mount of Olivet and just wept. And he finds his way out into the wilderness. And, and in the wilderness, the wilderness gets described a certain way. The people that are there with him, they're not prepared to be in the wilderness. And finally some supplies get sent. And the description of the people is, with, is that the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So that's where, this is the backdrop for Psalm 63. And a little more thought on David from Henry Lydon. He says, In David we have a notable example of a sensitive, tender, self-analyzing soul living in sustained communion with God. And in this psalm, public misfortunes do but force him back upon the central strength of the life of his spirit. Given the backdrop, wait until you hear what he sounds like right here. For the time, his crown, his palace, his honors, the hearts of his people, the love of his child, whom he loved, as we know, with such passing tenderness, are forfeited. The psalmist is alone with God. In his hour of desolation, he looks up from the desert to heaven. Oh God, he cried, thou art my God. Listen to what he sounds like as we read this psalm. Verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you. As long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Then I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. 
They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. And this psalm provides an amazing insight for the day of crisis. David is having a crisis here. And his response is one of amazing confidence in the midst of a sudden crisis in his life. But, but I want to draw our attention to something else here. Because not only is this insightful for the day of crisis, it's insightful for the day-to-day mundane aspects of our lives as well. Because David's going to tell us something that we are needing to understand. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> oh God... You are my God. Earnestly I I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And your translation may have different wordings. But what you have here is a posture of a man who is seeking, thirsting, and longing. Right Here you have a low-pressure system. A man who in himself finds lack, therefore he seeks. Something on the inside of him feels like thirst. It feels like inadequacy. It feels like I'm missing something. I need something out there to affect me. Now, this language that's here, this thirst, and and then you get down to verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. You know, what, what is this psalm trying to accomplish? There's thirst here. There's, there's rich food. I mean, is this, a, is this a Gatorade commercial? We're talking Red Lobster and Ruth's Chris. Uh, where's this going? Which, which, by the way, you know, I know we have a lot of dietary issues. And we had a wellness fair yesterday and the biggest loser. So we're obviously concerned about, you know, eating appropriately. But, you know, I, I can't ignore this. This is just a free, this is a freebie. This doesn't cost you any extra. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. You know what? You don't get that illustration unless you've been eating some fat and rich food. Okay? I get it. I just want you to know. I get what that passage is trying to tell me. You know, you can make a case for the need to eat fat and rich food. Next time somebody questions you on that, just saying, hey, look, I'm just trying to understand the Bible. Okay? (laughs) I mean... Until I ate that dessert, this verse made no sense to me. <laughs> uh, the Bible uses these, these pictures, these ideas like taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? But yet, we will neither taste God with our taste buds nor see him with our eyes. So what's up with, with that? Well, well, Scripture is borrowing from the physical dimension of our life to give us understanding about the spiritual dimension of our lives. See, we're, we're much quicker to be in touch with the physical aspects of us. And that's where this verse takes us, to that satisfaction of eating a good meal, to the sense of physical thirst when we're really thirsty and we're driven by that thirst and there's, there's a sense that I am seeking after something because of thirst and hunger that's in me. And, and then it educates us about that place that we started from. My soul thirsts 
My soul thirsts. Do you stop and regularly remember that you have a soul? That there's a dimension of you that has unique qualities to it and dynamic to it. It's that unseen portion of who you are. And when you stop and think about that, do you recognize when your soul is thirsty? Right? I know when my physical body is thirsty. I know when I'm hungry. Do you recognize when your soul is thirsty? And when you do, what do you do to try and satisfy its thirst? What do you seek? What do you go after in that moment? Well, here's, the, I believe, the great mistake that gets made by much of humanity is the mistake of living one-dimensional lives. Living only in the sense of the physical, natural realm of our life. Now, we do exist in a physical, natural realm, right? These bodies, the touch, the breathing, the fact that we need to eat. and uh, We live on planet Earth, and there's physical qualities here. That is a dimension of our lives, but it is a dimension of our lives. And we need to be aware that, according to Scripture... And according to our own conscience and the unseen parts of us, there's another dimension to who we are that needs to be cared for as well. Look, look in this passage with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Apostle Paul, writing in the New Testament... He says this. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Right, so according to the scripture, there, there, is two, there are two dimensions to who we are. There's an outer dimension to us, there's an inner. You could, a seen and a natural and a physical and an unseen spiritual soulish dimension to who we are. And two different things are going on simultaneously in this passage. The outer dimension, Paul says, is decaying. So, you know, if we're looking on the outer, I'm not really excited. Things are, are headed down. Things are falling apart. I mean, things are falling apart. But... There's a dimension that's not physical. It's an inner dimension that a different work is taking place in that moment. A work of renewal in this particular passage, speaking of the believers in this setting. He goes on in verse 17. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, there's one dimension, but at the things which are not seen, the other dimension. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So there's a, there's a physical dimension of my life, and it's going one way, and then there's a spiritual dimension of my life, and if God is at work in it, it's going a different way. And the conclusion is found right in the beginning of the verse, in verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. 
Why does Paul not lose heart? The preceding verses, if you looked above that, you'd find Paul telling a story about being perplexed and persecuted and all the, the effects that are coming into his life in opposition to him. But yet, because he's aware of this, there is a physical dimension, but there's an inner working. God is doing something on the inside in the soulish dimension of who I am. And that's being renewed day by day. It's increasing. It's in a good place. Therefore, I do not lose heart. See, if you're a Christian, there's a work on the inside going on in you, while another work completely different and maybe even awful may be going on on the outside of you. And so when someone walks up to you and says, hey, how you doing? You might want to pause carefully before you answer that question. Because the outside might be the first response you're tempted to give, right? I'm doing terrible. <laughs> Look at me. But according to Scripture, there's an unseen work going on in you that is working for you something that is an eternal weight of glory. Whatever bad situation you got going on in the physical, this is true for everybody in this room, it's temporary. The condition of your soul is eternal. The stuff falling apart on the outside, you know, it's like if you travel to a hotel to stay for two days and, you know, pull the towel off and the whole rack came off with it, and, you know, stain in the carpet. You know, are you, are you really weirded out about that? I mean, you might ask for another room, you might not, you know. That's not your home, is it? It's temporary. Well, well this, this isn't either. This is temporary. So, you know, I'm going to be slam dunking in heaven in a serious way. <laughs> No danger of ligament issues there. But whatever's going on in the physical dimension of my life, God is doing something in the soul that lasts forever. Now listen, the reality is we'll see in a moment. Uh, the soul lasts forever, whether it's going to last forever with God or whether it's going to last forever away from God. The soul will last forever. The physical dimension will not. One more verse, Romans 13 Verse 13 speaks of this dimension of our life again a little bit differently. It says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So there's a, a fleshly, natural component to me that, that wants certain things. It has some capacity for desiring stuff as well. But what we're talking about here with David is a soul that's thirsting for something. Not just the cravings of the flesh that want to eat the next meal or exploit some sexually immoral dimension of our lives. Right? Remember this guy in... Luke chapter 12, you can turn there with me. Luke chapter 12 introduces us to a guy who's living a one-dimensional life, and Jesus calls him a fool. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Imagine, Son of God shows up in your town, and this is the issues you want to talk to him about. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter for, over you? 
And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And your, your life is more than just the clothes you're wearing, the property you own, and your status because of who you are physically. He goes on, he says, he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Okay, well, first problem before even the response here. The stuff that you have laid up in your barns and the eating and drinking and being merry, that's not what your soul's after. So this is the foolishness of this man. <clears throat> Was to think that his soul could find rest in the size of his barns. His soul could take it easy. Oh, soul, your needs are met. Eat, drink, and be merry. Your soul is not looking for those things. Your soul is thirsting for something else. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, the tragedy of this man's life was that his soul knew nothing of his connection to God. And in the moment in which his temporary life was over and his physical life was going to expire, his next moment would be the consciousness of his soul standing before God with whom his soul knew nothing. And no matter how much he had succeeded in this life, his life just became the saddest of tragedies. And you know, Jesus spoke into his, his disciples, look at verse 22, right after this. He says to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look down at verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, the soul which is going to live on forever, you know, no, no matter how big your bank account, no matter how big your house, no matter how successful your business, when you draw your last breath, you're done with all that. You take none of it with you. You don't arrive in heaven with red carpet treatment because you got red carpet treatment here. The only thing you take to heaven is what's in your soul. My soul thirsts for God. And when it stands before God and I have exited this world, is my soul going to be jumping up and down and rejoicing because finally, ah, finally, 
I'm going to have fresh meaning to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because that's what my soul has been after all this time. These verses give us an idea of what the natural dimension craves. But that's not what the soul is after. The soul thirsts for something else. It's almost as though God has given the soul a different digestive system in using these thirsting and hungering dimensions. You know, when you, when you breathe oxygen, right? When you breathe, goes into your lungs, and goes back out and into your lungs. And you, you, that's a craving that you have. But how many of you know, no matter how much you breathe, your breathing doesn't help slake any thirst or satisfy any hunger in you. It's like you can breathe all you want, but the thirst of your physical body doesn't benefit from the breathing. Well, there's a dimension in which you can satisfy all the cravings of your flesh, of your natural person, and your soul doesn't benefit because it's thirsting for something. Charles Spurgeon said, only God himself can satisfy the craving of a soul really aroused by the Holy Spirit. When God begins to work in your life to bring you to an awareness of himself, your soul is thirsting for God. And no matter what you try, God is the only thing that can ever satisfy that thirst in you. Thomas Watson was a Puritan writer, you'll notice by his use of the English language. He said, in this passage, my soul thirsteth for thee. He doth not say my soul thirsteth for water, but my soul thirsteth for thee. Nor he doth say my soul thirsteth for the blood of my enemies. David had some people that he would have liked to have taken out. But my soul thirsteth for thee. Nor he doth say my soul thirsteth for deliverance out of this dry and thirsty land. It's a bad place he's in, bad circumstances. Where no water is, nor he doth not say, my soul thirsteth for a crown, a kingdom, but my soul thirsteth for thee. Listen, when, when we find ourselves in a place where God is doing something in our lives, our soul begins to thirst and long for God himself. Now, when that happens, what are you doing to satisfy that thirst? Because that disturbance, that void feeling on the inside, it can lead you to do a number of things. If you're not looking to satisfy the soul's craving, you'll satisfy it with the flesh. Maybe go shopping that day. Dream about buying a new house, getting a new car, getting a new gadget. And we get in these tight circumstances where we're kind of getting squeezed by the wilderness and and it's almost as though our prayer request is to undo the work of 2 Corinthians 4 that we just read. Though our outer man is decaying. Oh, but God, don't let my outer man decay. Oh, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm just feeling this thing on the inside. God, don't let the outer man decay. And, and we try to satisfy the inner man by satisfying the outer. See, God's doing something on the inside for the sake of eternity. These momentary light afflictions are working in us, an eternal weight of glory. You don't get to take the eternal dynamics 
through the flesh into heaven. They come through the working that God did in the soul, where my soul thirsts for God. Your, your soul is craving something more than food and entertainment and pleasures that are physically pleasing, and shelter, and sex. Your soul wants something more than that. If you try and feed your soul those things, you will never satisfy the thirst of your soul. Now, let me close with this. Right, you can come back up. Go back to Psalm 63 with me. Because Psalm 63 isn't wishful thinking on David's part. This isn't David in a bind thinking, oh, let me just say this so it might happen. This is a man convinced. In his setting, he's got reason to question whether he should be convinced. Everything's breaking out against him. His life is in danger. He's in a wilderness. It's his own son that's going to betray him, that is betraying him. It's poisoned everybody against him. His future is uncertain. So that's not a great place for him to be. But yet, he has a view of God that informs his soul. So let me, let me read this as a psalm of realization. The psalm of, ah, I get it. And hopefully the Lord will help us to get it. Verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Right? Not being kings, not my God. Not having my child love me and not want to kill me. That's not my God. Not having money or comfort or being out of this stinking wilderness. That's not my God. Right, right in the face of need for us to have a realization in that moment. Go, oh, no, no, Lord, you are my God. Earnestly, I will, I will seek you. My soul is thirsting for you. My flesh is fainting for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, I mean, he's convinced, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Now, before I keep reading, remember, this is a great setting because the context here is having confidence in the midst of crisis. But can we read it? Because most of us aren't always having a crisis. Most of us are struggling with the mundane. And this, this is manna for the mundane. A soul that's thirsting for God when it's workaday mundane. And I'm tempted to want to change everything in my life because I'm bored with mundane. I, I, I need, see, I, I need to get something or change something or do something or entertain myself with something. What's going on in that moment? My soul thirsts for God. I need to be convinced like David in my mundaneness like he was in his crisis. Verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You know, the moments in which you can't sleep. You usually can't sleep because you got something on your mind. And what, what is it that's usually on your mind? My outer man is decaying, right? That's what, the pains, the aches, or just the trouble of living in this world. David says, no, not for me. At night, the one who satisfies my soul 
I think about him at night. My thoughts go about him. I start considering him. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Listen, Brian's story, his testimony of a man in touch with his need, seeking, looking for, experimenting with. And you know, he could have just tried something else, right? A lot of guys do that, move from one drug to the next, move from one form of physical pleasure to another, move from one relational goal to another, move from success to another level of success. So it's tempting to try and scratch that itch for more with just more fleshly stuff. But, you know, here's, here's a reality. And if this is true for you this morning, it, it, it may be that God this morning is the one who's stirring your soul to thirst for him. Because just like Brian got some door hanger in his hand, and I love the divine setup. How bizarre. I mean, he was working, I think it was Gentilly doing some work outside. And there was, we had a team of folks that was in from out of town that were doing some work in the community and <clears throat> had an alpha coming up. They were passing out hangers, door hangers. So here he gets one of these. And just in case he was tempted to forget about it, he bumps into his dad, who's got one sitting on his desk. That's too funny. Is that ridiculous or what? I mean, I know every one of us bumps into these alpha door hangers every day, so it's common, but... God was doing something to stir up Brian's soul to look at his life and say, these things are not satisfying me. Might this be what I'm after? And he wasn't sure, but it was God getting him close enough to where he could become sure. And that story can be told over and over and over again in this room. Mine was very similar to his. It's 1978. I am experimenting as a teenager with drugs and alcohol, trying to find my place in the local pecking order of neighborhood dudes and school settings. And I can remember lying in my bed, thinking, there must be something more to life than this. I don't remember exactly the words, but I think that's about as close as I can remember. I just remember staring into the room, my bedroom, staring at the ceiling, not falling asleep, and thinking, is this is it? I mean, I'm just a teenager. I hadn't had too many miles on my tires yet. <clears throat> but I felt empty. You know, the reason why we feel empty, because it wasn't too long just after that, that I got saved. The recognition of that emptiness for me, it was God. It was God making me aware, Keith, the things that you are after in your life will never satisfy the inside of your soul. I'm the only one who can do that. It took me a while to hear it was God saying that to me, God awakening my soul, God giving me a sense that what my heart was longing for wasn't in this natural realm. It was in a relationship with him. 
Remember, Jesus gives this invitation, and I want to give it to you this morning. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Now, if you're aware that you're weary and heavy laden, that's kind of like being aware that your soul is thirsty. Because there are some people here this morning that you have no idea what I just talked about. <laughs> soul is thirsty. I'm just waiting for you to be done, dude. Um, <clears throat> but for any who are here who are aware, my soul is thirsty. I am weary and heavy laden. See, the ability for you to see that by God's goodness to help you to see it is followed up by this invitation. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you will find rest for your souls. So your soul will never be at rest until Jesus Christ touches it and puts it at rest. And he satisfies the thirst and the longing. Now, if you're here this morning aware of, yeah, that's me, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm longing. In just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to respond and to today make a decision like Brian made that will change your life forever and will put God in touch with satisfying what's going on on the inside of you. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for a day that we could be together with one another. And we're here with friends and family. We've been perhaps invited by a friend or a family member. And uh, Lord, thank you for the people that are in our lives. But Lord, this morning, many are here in touch with something deeper in them that no person can touch, no money can satisfy. No food or physical pleasure can quench. Because our souls were made for you, God. Our lives are more than those things. Our hearts long for you, Lord. So this morning, Lord, there are some here who sense that their heart is empty, their soul is thirsty, they want something more than what they have in their lives. They are weary and burdened and your invitation stands. Well then come. Come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll satisfy your thirst. Listen, if you're here this morning and you want to respond to that thirst that's in you and you want to come to Christ this morning, you want to ask him to come satisfy your soul. I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you just to to come out from where you are. In just a minute, Matt's going to lead us in a song. We're all going to sing together. But if you want to receive from Christ this morning, I want you just to come forward. And we're going to pray for you in the end. If you sense, man, I'm, I'm thirsty. And I want Christ today. As Matt begins to lead us in singing, 
step out from where you are and just come stand up here and we will come and pray with you and God will satisfy your soul and you will find rest like you cannot imagine that your heart has been looking for. Go ahead, man.